Hello from the Financial Times in London. I'm Katie Martin and this is News in Focus, where we offer our insights into the stories that matter. Saudi Arabia has removed Energy Minister Khalid Al-Fala, one of the most powerful figures in the global oil industry, in a dramatic shake-up at the heart of the kingdom's government. Here to discuss the significance of this and how it relates to the Crown Prince's ambitious plans for an IPO of state oil company Aramco is David Shepherd, our energy editor, and Andrew England, our Middle East editor. So, David, did you ever meet Mr Al-Fale? How well regarded is he? What's the significance of what's happened and the change for the oil market? I've met him on a number of occasions, both at OPEC meetings and in a sort of one-to-one interview earlier this year. He was very well respected in the energy industry. He was seen almost as the sort of consummate Davos man. He could have walked into the sort of the upper echelons of any major oil company, given his experience as the former chief executive of Saudi Aramco, the world's largest oil company. And he was seen as a very stable technocrat, essentially, who had a good grasp of the underlying fundamentals of the energy industry. That's not to say that he was not without his flaws, however, as anyone has. And it seems that perhaps some of his people management skills may have caused him some trouble at this time. It's fair to describe him as a bit of a kind of rock star of the OPEC scene, right? He's one of the best known people in the oil industry, right? So he's only, it seems like it's much longer, but he's only actually been in position as the Saudi, or was in position as the Saudi energy minister for just over three years. In that time, he's quickly established himself as the face of the organisation within OPEC. He's been out there as the sort of linchpin of OPEC's expanded relationship, broadly known as OPEC Plus, which is primarily based with Russia. Well, that arrangement has obviously been set at the highest levels of the government between Vladimir Putin and Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The relationship between Khaled al and his counterpart in Russia, Alexander Novak, was widely seen in the industry as helping to cement that position between them. They had a close working relationship. They were meeting multiple times a year. There was a clear sort of natural rapport between the two men. So while Russia has said since his removal that they don't expect there to be any great change in that relationship, both countries feel broadly that they have benefited from it, There is a question mark over whether the new Saudi energy minister, Prince Abdulaziz, will have quite the same relationship with his Russian counterpart as Mr Fali enjoyed. Right. So, if anything, what does this mean for oil prices in the oil market? Well, it's a tricky one to decipher entirely because the oil market moves on many things and not just what Saudi Arabia wants to happen. But it's broadly seen that while... Most people in the industry think that Khaled al-Fali was doing a pretty good job, had managed to arrange output cuts with Russia. He'd taken Saudi Arabia far below their production targets in an effort to boost the price and show the market that they really were serious. He's encountered a number of major headwinds. US-China trade war, slowdown in oil demand. Overall, in the background, is the rise of the US shale industry and how that has basically switched the market from one of scarcity to ample supply. Those same structural factors are going to be an issue for whoever is in position as the Saudi energy minister. But there is a feeling in the market that the Saudis are clearly indicating that $60 a barrel, which is where the price has bounced around for the last few months, a level that isn't high enough to balance Saudi Arabia's budget or to fund the ambitious reform programmes they want to have in their economy, that they will be pushing for a higher price in some way. Now, the question is... Can they do that? And how could they do that? The most obvious route might be to go for a further reduction 
in oil supplies later this year when the OPEC next meets in December. And that's definitely what traders in the market are looking for just now. Whether or not that will be entirely successful remains to be seen, or whether they'll even decide to go for it, because the headwinds, as I say, still remain. Global supply is rising, expected to rise even faster in 2020, arguably. And if we do find ourselves in even a mild recession, the impact on oil demand growth will be such that it's hard to see oil prices going that much higher. Are you excited about the next OPEC already? Always, always. I never wait. Uh, but it will be interesting to see the Prince up close. Prince Abdulaziz is, of course, a veteran of these meetings. He's not some unknown quantity or princeling that's been parachuted into a role that he's got no experience with. He's a man who's worked for the energy ministry for roughly 30 years. He has been a frequent attendee at OPEC meetings and actually has helped with negotiations in the past between Saudi Arabia and its allies and its rivals. So he's not exactly wet behind the ears when it comes to all this and was seen as a potential pivotal player. What is different here is that Saudi Arabia has historically kept the roles of energy minister entirely separate from the royal family because it was always seen in the past as too important to ever fall victim to family infighting or whatever that might be. But of course, with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who has shown an ambition to certainly consolidate power around his branch of his father's family... This can be viewed as another attempt to centralise power in that branch of the Salman family. So, Andrew, I mean, David touched somewhat there on how these responsibilities are generally divvied up, if you like. And Mr. Al-Fali had a lot of responsibilities, heading up a super ministry responsible for energy, industry and mining. So was there a certain logic in splitting up the roles? Yeah, I think there was. Like you say, I mean, since he was appointed to the Ministry of Energy, Industry and Natural Resources in 2016, he'd had a huge portfolio. That was around the time that Prince Mohammed, the Crown Prince, launched his Vision 2030 plan to overhaul the kingdom. And I think there'd been a sense from what people tell me that particularly on the industry side of things, i.e. developing new industries, industries are going to create jobs for young Saudis in the private sector, which is a core part of Prince Mohammed's vision, Mr. Fallah wasn't actually delivering. That was the sense. Particularly, you know, there was disgruntlement in the private sector, which has been battered by a whole load of fiscal reforms, tariffs on foreign labours, etc., and yet not really seeing genuine economic reforms to boost economic growth and deliver job creation. So on that, splitting out the industrial ministry from the energy ministry made sense. Then he was replaced as the chairman of Aramco. Again, there was a rationale behind that. As Prince Mohammed is re-injecting new impetus into uh, IPO for the state oil company, there was a sense that he couldn't do both jobs. He couldn't be Minister of Energy and Chairman of Aramco, purely for governance reasons. So when he was removed from those two posts, or when he was removed from the post of Chairman of Aramco and the industry ministry was stripped away, people were surprised but not necessarily shocked. I think the big shock was when he was replaced as the energy minister. Did the timing take you by surprise? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we've been speaking to people for over 10 days, talking about the different moves, the stripping away of the industry ministry, as I said, and the change at the head of the board of Aramco. And people could explain that away. When it came to the energy ministry job, that shocked everybody, I think, right. at least those who weren't in the know. And because he was, as David says, you know, such a global figure, so his position reverberates domestically and globally. He was certainly seen as the global face of Saudi's energy policy. He was well known internationally. So to remove him was a big thing. So David, we've spoken a little bit about what this means for the oil market. But what we also want to know about is what this means for the Aramco IPO. 
Will Mr. Faller's replacement, Yasser Al-Rumayan, handle this differently, maybe speed things up, get it going? Because we've been waiting for ages, haven't we? Well, it's starting to feel like finally, and it has been a, a very long time, not least of all for those covering it, <laughs> that it could be all systems go, at least for a small listing on the domestic Tadawul exchange in mm. Saudi Arabia. We're hearing at the moment that it looks likely that the kingdom is going to try and list approximately 1% of the company. That's out of a total of approximately 5% we think they could list over time of Aramco, even by the end of this year. Now, that would require a rapid acceleration, but many people think that the removal of Khaled Al-Fali is in part designed to facilitate that. He supported the IPO publicly, but has long been said to have harboured doubts in the background and has been one of the few people willing to say to the Crown Prince that this perhaps wasn't always you know, the best idea. He had reservations, allegedly, about listing in New York, for example, because of the legal risk that that could expose Saudi Arabia to, not least from the families of 9-11 victims who have long looked to take action against Saudi Arabia, where the majority of the terrorist attackers on that day came from. So with him out of the picture, it does seem to be moving more quickly all the bankers from London and New York have been rushing back out there again, trying to get their pitches in to play a role in this. And it seems there is some desire to get this done by the end of the year. The big question mark is, can they reach the valuation, which the Crown Prince put out there, of $2 trillion, mm. which many bankers and energy analysts and industry types think is vastly optimistic. They think maybe a trillion to a trillion and a half could be achievable in good circumstances. Two trillion is a long shot, but he seems adamant that that's going to be the right. kind of valuation he can get, perhaps doing it with 1% initially domestically, initially perhaps with local investors, they mm. may have a better shot at that. And Andrew, will all this, all of these changes give more power to the public investment fund? I mean, perhaps you can tell us a little bit about what they do and will it have more control now over the money the kingdom hopes to raise from this IPO? Yes and no. I mean, I think a lot of what we're seeing today is a reflection of the trends we've seen in the kingdom over the last year, 18 months, mm -hmm. two years. Prince Mohammed has been consolidating his power and he's surrounding himself by a clique of close aides and Yasser al-Ramayan is one of those. Khaled al-Fala was never a full member of his inner circle. And, you know, the PIF has been identified clearly as the vehicle to drive the economic diversification plans. It was once a kind of a sleeping sovereign fund set up in the 70s, really did very little. And then since 2015, really, it's become the main vehicle of Prince Mohammed. He chairs it. He oversees it. They've got huge ambitions in terms of its size. And it was always seen as to be the main recipient of any IPO when it happened because mm. they need the funds for all the financial commitments they made, mega projects at home, investments overseas, commitments to SoftBank's Vision Fund, all these kind of things. They need money. They've got assets. They don't have cash. So what this does is kind of reinforces that. So how did the massive bond sale for Saudi Aramco change the picture there in terms of how people think that deal is going to get away? I think it just gave the government confidence that there was demand for what Saudi Arabia was offering and a sense that they were over the worst of the backlash in the wake of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in October last year. I mean, that was a huge shock for the kingdom. We know that there were government agents involved. The CIA has accused or, or suggested that Prince Mohammed himself probably authorised it, given his role as de facto leader of the kingdom. So it triggered the worst diplomatic crisis for the kingdom since the September 11 attacks in the US. It rattled investors. Bankers never really pulled away. But if investors were looking to direct investment, you know, putting their brand in the kingdom, they suddenly became aware of the political contagion 
the risk, their reputations. So I think the bond, again, it kind of, I was there at a financial conference. We had the head of HSBC there. People were back. They were talking up the kingdom. It was seen as a bit of a moment when the kingdom could say, right, can we put this behind us? I don't think they have yet fully. I mean, I think direct investors are still wary. It's still something they have to bear in mind when they're considering. And we haven't seen high levels of foreign investment, direct investment in the kingdom. Like I say, it's different for bankers. They go in, they do their business, they take their fees. And Aramco is just too big a deal not to be involved in. Yeah. The bond sale just absolutely flew off the shelves, right? It was pretty clear that investors were prepared to look past what would happen. Yeah. How many people know who's actually invested? You know, you can do it without putting your name to it, even, you know, hedge funds, institutional funds, et cetera, et cetera. So on that financing side, people are going to be there because they see it as a great investment, a great deal or a great chance to make money. And Aramco, you know, as David said, it's you know, the biggest company in the world. It, when it, yeah. In its prospectus, it uh, revealed that it had $111 billion in revenue last year. That's massive. You know, we're talking about a massive company. And the IPO has been highly anticipated. You know, there'll be people dying to get a piece of the action. Mm. I mean, the, the way... To think about Saudi Aramco, I mean, we often talk about UK PLC, but it really <laughs> is Saudi Inc. when yeah. you look at this company. Without the oil that Saudi Aramco produces, Saudi Arabia would be a vastly different country. You've got to think of it in terms of it produces more than 10% of all the crude oil in the world at any given moment. You know, if you're driving your car, wherever you are in the world, on average, there's a one in 10 chance that that oil has come from Saudi Arabia in its first instance. The sheer size of this company is hard to overstate. But the broader issue, and it's exactly what they're trying to address, is that the rest of the economy has not diversified. It's a wealthy country, but in its own way, it's always suffered from the oil curse. When you have easy revenues coming in from selling circa 10 million barrels of crude every day, it's very hard for other industries to thrive. One last question. I mean, what does this all mean for Mohammed Bill Summons? Ambitions to modernise Saudi Arabia, where does it sit in that project? I think the IPO of Aramco was always the centrepiece for two mm. reasons. One, because they need to raise the capital. You know, since 2014, when you had a slump in oil prices, Saudi Arabia has been grappling with a wide budget deficit, which is expected to widen again this year. The PIF needs cash. Like I said, it has assets, more than $300 billion in assets at the moment. The target is to get it to more than $400 billion next year. But again, it doesn't have cash. And it's doing things like Neon, this futuristic city in Saudi Arabia. It's building new industries, Sami and arms industry. It's investing in Uber. It's doing waste recycling. So they need cash for it. So that's one reason. But I also think it's credibility to mm. Prince Mohammed's plans. He's clearly made you know, progress on the social in terms of allowing women to drive, easing up the restrictions, pushing back against the religious police. So you can say he's made clear headway there. He hasn't really on the economic. They've put right. in place fiscal reforms, but that's hurt the investment climate. What they haven't been able to do yet is really create the next generation of the economy that they've been talking about, creating new industries. And that's going to take capital. And being able to say that we are serious about privatisation and about reducing the role of the state. So from a credibility point of view, it's also crucial. Well, thanks, Andrew, and thanks, David, and thanks, everyone else, for listening. Don't forget, if you missed our episodes on how Google uses your data, Italy's new political alliance, or Africa's internet giant, NASPERS, you can find them all on the usual podcast platforms.
Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley fletcher Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.